They trudged wearily across the ford, as their forebears had done for hundreds of years. Their child, who had been sickly since birth, was now borne high over the river. Slowly, they climbed the steep, damp riverbank, one by one, and shuffled into the small burial ground where they placed their beloved child in a grave, harshly dug into the remains of those gone before him, and among the dead of the old churchyard, they keened their loss. With arms lovingly folded and lightly shrouded, a quartz pebble gently placed alongside him, he was then covered with soil and the broken bones of others. Welcome to Ballyhanna, Stories from the Grave. This audiobook, produced by Abarta Audio Guides on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland and the Ballyhanna Research Project, is a companion to the new publication, The Science of a Lost Medieval Gaelic Graveyard, the Ballyhanna Research Project. The discovery in 2003 of a graveyard and the foundations of a small forgotten stone church in Ballyshannon, County Donegal, as part of the N15 Bundoran-Ballyshannon Bypass archaeological works, led to one of the largest excavations of medieval burials ever undertaken on this island. Over 1,200 individuals were excavated from the site at Ballyhanna over the winter of 2003 to 2004, representing 1,000 years of burial through the entire Irish medieval period. It was the recognition of the knowledge potential of the burials that led to the Ballyhanna Research Project. Studies of human remains and burial practice provide great insight into lifestyles, social behaviour, health, diet and disease. The Ballyhanna burials offered the opportunity to explore these issues from the start of the medieval period, prior to the Norman invasion, through to the flight of the earls in the 17th century. Funded by the National Roads Authority, now operating as Transport Infrastructure Ireland, the Ballyhanna Research Project is a cross-border partnership linking Queen's University Belfast to the Institute of Technology Sligo, using applied scientific methods to enhance our knowledge of the site. The Ballyhanna Research Project is a cross-border collaborative project that was established to investigate a medieval church and burial ground, which was lost from local knowledge for centuries, rediscovered in 2003 and subsequently excavated. One of the primary aims of the project is to show how scientific research may aid our interpretations of archaeology and reveal new insights into past societies. The project research tells us about this community through death and burial traditions, and by examining these aspects, it also tells us about the people that lived in this medieval community, who, over the course of a millennium, were laid to rest in a small graveyard by the banks of the River Urn. The chapters of this audiobook are broken into tracks, with each track discussing a particular aspect of the story of Ballyhanna. 
five of these tracts are written from the first-person perspective of individuals whose remains were discovered during the excavation or who were likely to have lived and worked at Ballyhanna in the past. These first-person accounts are fictional, but attempt to recreate their time, surroundings and lives based on the information retrieved during the excavation and analysis and from contemporary historical records. The first of these perspectives is Track 5, The Story of the Physician. This story was inspired by the excavation's discovery of the skull of a young girl who lived during the late 7th or early 8th century. Her remains showed evidence of trepanation. This is a surgical intervention where a small hole is drilled into the skull. From the evidence of her remains, she had survived this dangerous procedure as the hole caused by the trepanation showed signs of healing. However, her life was marked by tragedy as she died at a young age from severe chronic infection unrelated to the trepanation. The next story, track six, the story of the pilgrim, was inspired by the discovery of the skeleton of a female with a scallop shell found placed over the right breast. A scallop shell is the emblem of St. James the Apostle, who is believed to have been buried at Santiago de Compostela. The presence of this shell may indicate that this woman had been on a pilgrimage to northwest Spain, following the route of the famous Camino. The next story, track 7, The Story of the Soldier, was inspired by the battle at Oshani, the ford nearby to Ballyhanna, that took place in 1247. In this battle, the Normans, with their Ocananon allies, defeated the men of Tyrconnell and slayed the king, Male Shocklin. A number of the remains discovered during the excavation showed signs of having suffered a violent death, including the skeleton of a young man with an Anglo-Norman-type arrowhead embedded in his ribs. Though we cannot say for certain that this young man fell in the Battle of 1247, it seems a possible scenario. The next story, Track 8, The Story of the Midwife, tells the sad story of child mortality and the dangers of childbirth in medieval Ireland. It was particularly inspired by the poignant discovery of the remains of a young mother with her newly delivered baby twins, carefully placed across her chest and abdomen within the crook of her arm. This discovery gives a tangible glimpse of all too understandable pain and loss shown in the care and arrangement of the burial. The next story, track 9, The Story of the Gravedigger, was inspired by the terrible plague that swept through the region in 1478. This is likely to have had terrible consequences for those in the vicinity of Ballyhanna. At this time, before modern medicine and hygiene, such outbreaks had almost apocalyptic mortality rates. During these tracks, you will hear terms and names that would have been familiar to the inhabitants of the region at the time, but that have long since passed from common usage. For example, an Aranoch was the equivalent of a local chief, 
minor lord or head tenant, whose role was to manage the farm, maintain church buildings, provide hospitality, entertain bishops and other noted visitors. The role was hereditary, and they had rights to a fishing weir for eels, a salmon leap and a watermill. This would have made them considerably wealthy and important personages in local life. The names chosen throughout the first-person sections are taken from publications such as Irish Names by Dunica O'Coran and Fidelma Maguire and Contemporary Annals. We have strived to choose names that would have been relatively common in medieval Gaelic Ireland. The History of Ballyhanna Ballyhanna is located on the outskirts of the small Donegal town of Ballyshannon. The site of the church and graveyard sits in the shadow of a landmark structure, the Aerua Bridge, which was built over the River Erne in 2005 as part of the N15 bypass. However, in medieval times, Ballyhanna lay adjacent to an earlier strategic river crossing, the ford from which Ballyshannon takes its name, Arshani, the most important crossing point along the lower reaches of the Erne. The early history of Ballyshannon is a mixture of myth and legend, with all the wonderful and intriguing imagery that belongs to such tales. One such legend suggests that Pathalon, eighth in succession from Noah, was the first settler in Ballyshannon in around 2700 BC. Archaeological evidence indicates prehistoric settlement and activity in the general area during the early Neolithic period from around 4000 BC onwards. During the medieval period, Ballyshannon was a key stronghold for the O'Donnell lineage, who ruled the kingdom of Tyrconnell. The church and graveyard of Ballyhanna had all but vanished prior to the excavations in 2003, and they were not marked on any of the early maps of the area. It is reasonable to ask how this site, that had been used for a thousand years, located on the outskirts of a town and next to the high-profile fording point across the River Erne, had become lost from local memory. Twice, historians had discovered references to a church at Ballyhanna, but as there were no visible remains of a church to be seen in the townland, they assumed that there was a mistake and the references pointed to a known church in the neighbouring townland. More recently, a local historian discovered that burials had been uncovered on at least three separate occasions in the vicinity of the site. In the 1870s, during the laying of gas pipes, skeletons were uncovered at the junction of Eastport and Station Roads. In 1900, skeletons were once again unearthed when water pipes were being laid to service the nearby Great Northern Railway Station. Further pipe laying and roadworks during the 1950s resulted in the discovery of more skeletal remains underneath the adjacent roads and, despite being handed into the police authorities, the discovery did not lead to the site being recognised either locally or officially within the archaeological record. Finally, during the excavations of 2003 and 2004, paving slabs, last laid, it is believed, in the 1970s, were removed from the footpath to the north of the site, directly beneath which lay the remains of human skeletons. 
It is inconceivable that the skeletons would not have been seen when the footpath was laid, but the discovery of human remains, for whatever reason, was never officially registered. To uncover the mystery of why the graveyard was forgotten in the first place, we have to return to 17th century Ballyhanna. Following their defeat in the Nine Years' War, the Gaelic lords of Ulster and their followers fled Ireland for the continent in 1607. The O'Donnell Castle and much of the land surrounding Ballyshannon were granted to Sir Henry Folliot, who in 1620 became the first Baron of Ballyshannon. However, the Civil Survey of 1654 records that the land at Ballyhanna was still in the hands of the Anglican Bishop of Clare, who rented it to Martin Arstall, a Scottish Protestant. It is not known for certain whether any trace of the church and burial survived by the time the land was rented to Martin Arstall. However, archaeological evidence obtained during the excavation suggests that burial had ended in the graveyard after the first two decades of the 17th century. By the 19th century, the old graveyard and church site of Ballyhanna had become subsumed within the grounds of Rockville House. We do not know if the church was levelled deliberately or if its decline was more gradual, but graveyards are seldom lost through progressive degeneration, and a measure of deliberate levelling probably played a role in erasing Ballyhanna from local memory. Especially given that in the early modern period the destruction of old churches and graveyards was sadly not an uncommon occurrence. Once abandoned, soil was gradually washed down the hill slope by decades of rainfall so that it slowly covered the site. Rubble from the abandoned church and perhaps also stone grave slabs may have been reused in the construction of the estate wall and of the house itself, further reducing any visible markers of the site. If anything was left to see of the site by that time, it would have lain inaccessible within the cocooned grounds of the big house, out of sight. Local memory of the church and of the tradition of burial at that place would have then further faded out of mind. This communal memory loss of such an obviously important site would undoubtedly have been compounded by emigration in the centuries after it fell out of use, and in the mid-19th century famines that impacted greatly on Ballyshannon and the region. It is likely that the last folk memory of the site was swept away at that time, down the urn and across oceans or into mass famine graves. The Excavation of Ballyhanna In 2003, during the course of pre-construction archaeological works for the 15-kilometre-long N15 Bundoran to Ballyshannon bypass, a small graveyard and the foundations of a building were discovered in the townland of Ballyhanna. The burial ground was excavated over the winter months of 2003 and 2004, by Irish Archaeological Consultancy Limited, under the direction of Brian O'Donoghue and funded by the National Roads Authority through Donegal County Council. By the end of the six-month excavation in March 2004, the remains of some 1,296 men, women and children had been recovered from the graveyard, 
making it one of the largest collections of human remains to have been excavated from a burial ground in Ireland. The first people who were laid to rest at Ballyhanna were buried from the late 7th or early 8th century onwards and the burial ground remained in use until the early 17th century. It was a small graveyard at the base of a steep hill surrounded by bedrock which prevented expansion over its long period of use. The burials were concentrated to the south and east of the foundations of a building, most likely a small church. Upon discovery of the building's foundations, a design change in the junction layout was agreed and the foundations of the church were preserved. It is now the focal point of a small heritage park which was designed with input from the local community to commemorate all those buried at Ballyhanna. How Science Revealed the Story of Ballyhanna The Ballyhanna Research Project was established by the NRA in 2005 following completion of the excavation. The project was a cross-border research collaboration between Queen's University Belfast and the Institute of Technology Sligo. It was funded through Donegal County Council. The research partners were selected for their expertise in osteoarchaeological research and applied science. The principal aim of the project was to examine the human skeletal assemblage using techniques developed in osteoarchaeology, biomolecular science and analytical chemistry to learn about the people buried in the medieval cemetery. It was recognised by the founding project members that this multidisciplinary approach to the study of the human skeletal collection had the potential to reveal exciting new insights into medieval Ballyhanna and, by extension, to add significantly to our knowledge of medieval Gaelic Ulster. The various research elements were explored through the creation of three fully funded doctoral research projects and further sub-projects. Bioarchaeology, the scientific study of human skeletal remains, provides important information about how people lived in the past. A detailed examination of human skeletal remains has the potential to reveal insights into burial practices, health, diet, economy, violence and warfare in past populations. The support of the National Museum of Ireland was critical to the development and progress of the project. The National Museum of Ireland is responsible for ensuring that all scientific research undertaken on archaeological material will add significantly to our knowledge of the past. When working with human skeletal remains, ethical codes of conduct are of particular importance and are strictly adhered to. The Ballyhanna Research Project has, from the outset, recognised the importance of making the results of the research accessible to the local community in Ballyshannon and the wider general public through lectures, articles and interviews. As part of the archaeological profession, it is particularly important to respect local interest and concerns, especially when working with ancestral human remains. 
the individuals buried at Ballyhanna are very important indeed to the story of medieval Gaelic Ulster. But the site and the people who were buried there are of particular importance to the local community of Ballyshannon. The people of Ballyshannon, through their support, interest and involvement, have greatly contributed to the work of the project. The Story of the Physician Young Orla, daughter of the local Ernoch, was found lying at the bottom of the tall oak. She looked as if in a deep slumber, though she had dark blood coming from her ears and nose. She must have fallen from a high bough in the tree and struck her head, though I can see no clear mark of injury. Her kinsmen carried her back to their house and sent a boy to run here to the monastery for the abbot's council. The abbot brought me along, as he wishes to have me trained in the medical arts to be of more use to the monastery. However, when we saw the dark, dark circles around her eyes and felt the heat coming from the lump that was forming on her head, we knew that we needed a more skilled hand. The abbot sent for the olive, the master physician O'Cassidy. He is famed throughout Ulster for his skill and dexterity. He is said to have passed the three tests before he could grow a beard, and he nearly always provides a complete cure with no blemishes and without pain to the patient. As every learned person knows, there are twelve doors to the soul. The bulge of the groin, the hollow of the ham, the bend of the elbow, the side, the navel, the breastbone, the armpit, the hollow of the breastbone, the apple of the throat, the hollow of the temple, the hollow of the occiput, and most important of all, the top of the head. To help Orla to return to us, we must open the top of the head, a most delicate operation. It is known that less than a dozen physicians across Ireland are able to carry it out successfully. That is why Abbot Moncon is so keen for me to be on hand to study the physician O'Cassidy's methods. We carried out the procedure in the centre of the village at noon to ensure the fullest possible light. Physician O'Cassidy stressed the importance of light and cautioned me strongly against attempting it in the smoky gloom of a house. And so I began by cutting off her long hair and shaving her scalp cleanly. Truth be known, I nearly fainted several times during the procedure. Though I am used to the wounds of war and occasional bloody accidents, I was unprepared for the sight of Physician O'Cassidy calmly slicing open a flap of Orla's scalp and the sight of white bones shining through the blood. It seemed like the whole village, a ghoulish set of souls, crowded round to see the performance of the great physician. But though it was my task to help hold the patient still on the chair, I could barely look. Thankfully... We had dosed Orla with so much drink that she peacefully snored throughout the operation, with the flap of scalp hanging in front of her face. Physician O'Cassidy used a small, sharp, serrated blade, like a freak, to first puncture the skull and then saw into the bone. 
The gentle rasping of the saw through the bone will haunt me. Blood bubbled up with a hiss through the hole, and Physician O'Cassidy gently removed the splinters of bone using a pair of fine copper tweezers. The operation complete, we simply replaced the scalp and sewed it back into place, with Orla snoring all the while. We had her kinsman gently carry her on a bier back into the Yarnock's house, where they placed her sitting upright on her bed with her bandaged head in a shaft of light. I have told the household the rules set by the physician, that even a man as important as the Ernoch must obey if he wants his daughter to recover. While she is recovering, they are forbidden from having any fools or excitable people in the house. No games are to be played, no cries of victory or shouts of anger, no important tidings are to be announced, no children to be scolded or chastised, neither men nor women are allowed to exchange blows or brawl, no dogs are permitted to fight or bark in the house or outside, no shouts can be raised, no pigs are to squeal, absolutely no yelling or screaming. It should be calm and peaceful and above all quiet, if she wakes seeking food, she is to be given only celery, as it prevents thirst and does not stir up sickness or infection. I hope they heed my advice, for though often sickly and prone to accidents, Orla is the favourite daughter of the Ernoch. Besides, learning the craft of a physician is risky work. If a physician accidentally cuts a joint or sinew whilst operating, then the law demands the physician pays a fine and must assume responsibility for sick maintenance of the patient at his own expense. A heavy penalty for a poor monk such as myself. The Story of the Pilgrim Bridget always wanted to see the world. Ah, yes, she was very devout, and you could always find her in the church. But I think secretly her pilgrimages were from a love of travel and adventure as much as the love of God. I was so proud of my sister, and I still am. She has seen more of the world than anyone else in the land, never mind this cosseted village. She was gone for so long, but she returned here a few years back. I'm not sure why, as she still seemed restless, always looking like she wanted to be somewhere else. Especially since that winter sickness took her husband so long ago. She told me many stories of her travels. My favourite story was of her pilgrimage to see the relics of St James, in the great city of Santiago de Compostela, in the kingdom of Galicia. Oh, doesn't it sound so exotic? She set sail from the port of Galway, and I went down to see her off. That's as far as I've ever been from home, and it wasn't to my liking at all. Too full of rough louts and sailors, all hooting and shouting even though I'm obviously a lady far beyond their station. She crossed the rough seas to the city of Chester. From there she walked all the way to Coventry and St Albans 
to see the famed monastery before travelling on to London. Oh, how Bridget loved London. Though by the sound of it, I would not be over fond of the place. It sounds even worse than Galway, if you can imagine such a thing. I think there would be far too much noise and bustle and far, far too many people. I'm better off here, where you can occasionally enjoy a little peace. Bridget even went into Westminster Abbey. Now that I would like to see. She said it's enormous beyond imagining and full of beautiful paintings and sculptures. After London, I think she said it was Dover next and then back on a ship to cross another great expanse of sea before reaching France. I don't know how she can stand it. I feel queasy just by looking at the boats in the docks, all that bobbing up and down. And the food on the ships just sounded terrible. Salt fish and strips of salted beef as tough as leather boots. Not for me, thank you. She sailed to the port of Bordeaux, where all that lovely wine that I'm so fond of comes from. After that, she walked for countless miles and saw wonders along the way. She travelled alone, which strikes me as very dangerous, and she slept on rough straw pallets and even once in a stable. Can you imagine that? A noble lady of the famed Magoons sleeping beside the donkeys and mules. Bridget always said if it was good enough for our Lord, then it's good enough for her. But then she was always infuriatingly decent about things. She was never even harsh with the servants when we were growing up and even tried to help them with their chores despite the scoldings from father. She said Santiago was a place of wonders and that travellers and pilgrims from all over the world came to venerate at the shrine of St. James. She said walking that long road to Santiago was the happiest she's ever been. She returned full of stories with a simple white shell of a scallop as a mark of her journey. She hung it from a beam of her house, but I would catch her holding it every now and again, looking like she wanted to be off once more. I lay her shell on her chest now, so she can carry it on her final journey. The Story of the Soldier The foreigners came on us like a storm. I've never seen anything like it. I've been a warrior for more years than I can count, and I've seen lots of fighting and raids. But this was just a massacre. The day started well. The great King Melchachlan had brought all of his warriors down to the fort, along with McSorley, the King of Argyll and his crowd of wild Scotsmen. They'd been promised lands and riches once they helped us to clear the English out. We had word that the foreigners, along with their lapdogs, the cursed O'Cannonons, were making their way to the fort, 
so we lined up along our side of the ford and waited for them. In all honesty, we didn't expect much of a fight. We thought they'd turn away when they saw how many we were. We'd been playing come on, what the Munstermen call hurling, and having a great time feasting and drinking with the Scots all night, bragging about how many foreigners we'd kill and how we'd use their helmets as a privy pot. With sore heads and churning guts we massed on the bank, just waiting for them to come. We didn't have to wait too long. Young Oron was the first to die. One of their bowmen put a shaft into his ribs. We had him passed back to be taken care of by the Ernok's physicians, but whatever they did, it didn't work. It rarely does once they start coughing blood. Truth be told, we didn't see the bowmen creeping up on us through the woods, but as soon as Oran fell, our shields went up pretty sharpish. The bowmen poured arrows on us like rain. There must have been hundreds of them. Many fell as the arrows found the gaps between shields. As we tried to get back into some kind of order, the foreigners charged us on horse with their long spears. Few of us had ever faced mounted soldiers before. Usually we just use horses to get from place to place quickly. Fighting from the back of them just isn't right. The horses were much bigger than we had expected, several hands taller than the short ponies we used. They smashed through the lines, and hordes of Ocanonons followed them on foot, brutally slashing with swords and axes. The urge to run before this unstoppable tide of horseflesh and steel was overwhelming, even for an experienced soldier like me. The young lad got a sword through the shoulder right next to me. He barely looked fifteen summers old. He should never have been there. We did our best to hold them off, and the Scots fought like demons. They were more used to fighting the English than us Ulstermen. They shouted, Kill the beast first, then the man! We used our axes and swords to slash at the horses' unprotected necks and flanks, while the English slashed down at us with their swords. Some horses fell in a mess of whirling limbs, crushing our men with their weight and doling out vicious kicks all round. We held for over a week, though our losses were fearful. Every time the foreigners charged, we held them off. They lost men, we lost men, and we were all exhausted. We noticed a large number of the Ocananons mount up and ride away, and that gave us great heart as we thought they'd finally begun to give up. Not the foreigners, though. Their leader, Fitzmorris, kept throwing them at us, first sending archers, then horses, and then on foot, constantly probing our defences to see where we were weakest, though each time we held strong. On the seventh day, the morning started quiet, with little movement from the foreigners on the other bank. Close to noon, one of the lads spotted what looked like the glint of spears in the distance from our side of the bank, coming up the river towards us. We were overjoyed, thinking it was reinforcements, come to stand in our stead so we could rest at last. We were wrong. It was the bloody Ocanonans. They must have rode south and crossed at the ford of Kulainia. They rode right into our flank. Seeing how disordered we were in dealing with this new threat, the foreigners threw everything they had left over the ford to attack us. The Scots in our centre gave way when their king, Mac Sorley, fell. 
he was chopped down by a foreigner on a horse. As soon as they broke, it was all over. The O'Cannonons got in behind us and started a red slaughter. The foreigners saw where the banners of our King Melchachlan flew, and they charged straight for them, cutting down all our warriors like farmers impatient to finish the harvest. We broke between the fury of the O'Cannonons and the speed of the foreigners. So many fell in those last moments, like these two poor boys we bury now. At least the O'Cannonons are allowing us to bury our dead in the graveyard rather than leaving them on the field for the crows. Sure, they're our new lords now, and it's them we must kneel to. They've left a small number to guard the ford while the rest of the army pushes deeper into our land. We'll bury these two lads side by side as they fell. With so many badly wounded, there'll be many more needing a grave before long. The story of the midwife. Ah, it would just break your heart. We lost poor Beckon and her two little babies yesterday. She was just too small to bear such a burden of twins. Sure she stood a whole head shorter than me, and I'm near kin to a dwarf, so says my husband. I always tell him better small and pretty than gangly with a grizzled face like the arse of a badger. But he just laughs and teases me more. Now Beckon really was small and perfect. She had such lovely dark hair with no pox marks on her face at all. She was just so slight though. Always looked like she needed a good feed. How she married that great oaf Guffrey, I'll never know. Bless them, they were so mismatched. He must have stood taller by half her size again. He's the strongest of Eranuk's warriors. No one ever dares to make a jest about him. They say he's ferocious in a fight. But look how gently he carries her in her shroud. I feared for her from the start. I've delivered more than I can remember, but none suffered as much as poor Beckon. She could neither eat properly nor drink for the first few months that she was with child. She just couldn't keep anything down. We played her with so much boiled dandelion juice to relieve her sick belly that I was surprised she didn't turn yellow. It didn't seem to do much good, though. And she became so weak, I thought we'd lose her in the early stages. Guffrey even sent for the Ban League, the woman who calls herself a physician. But apart from sticking those filthy leeches all over her, she couldn't do much more for her than I'd already tried. It didn't help at all. Then all of a sudden, Beckon seemed to be well again, though still very pale, and was even able to get out and start spinning wool again. She kept getting bigger and bigger, though. I thought she might burst. 
when the time came for the birth. Oh, it was the hardest one I've known. We lose so many babies, but poor Beckon was in such pain, screaming and screaming, and the blood, there was just too much blood. She might have lived had it just been the one child, but the effort for the second baby was just too much for poor Beckon. Twins. Two identical boys, like their father and his brother. When the second boy came out, she smiled and just seemed to fade away. There was nothing I could do, not with all that blood. She was just too small to bear such a burden as two boys. Try as I might, I couldn't even save the boys. One followed his mother soon after she passed. The other clung on and desperately fought. But by evening he too had left us. Look how gently poor Guffrey lays her in the ground. His identical brother Garode has one of the boys and Beckon's sister the other. Guffrey lays his sons down. One rests on her chest, the other on her belly. He places Beckon's arms around her sons in a last cradling embrace. Ah, it would break your heart. The Story of the Grave Digger. Cursed bell again. <laughs> that means another poor soul has fallen from this foul pestilence. That makes six today and over twenty since Monday. It's spreading like wildfire, and I pray to God that it disappears as quick as it came. But there's no sign of that. Half the village is down. None of the afflicted can swallow even so much as good, honest, fresh milk without coughing and retching it all back up. <laughs> even Big Cunnel, who is strong as an ox, is wasting away to bone, shivering and crawling in his own stink. The poor lummox. I once saw him carrying logs by himself that took three men to lift, like they were sticks. Now he can't even lift his own head. This grave I'm digging now is for little Sive, the blacksmith's child. The poor thing only saw eight summers. Her poor father, Aid, hasn't left the forge at all. I haven't seen him out for food or ale in all that time. Just... Bang, bang, bang with the hammer. I suppose his wife, Blonnet, will wrap little Sive in her shroud. I wonder will Aid come out of the forge to hear the priest before she's covered up? 
She'll be buried near her kin. Though that's true of all of us. It's an ancient ground, this, and you can't dig one grave without disturbing the white bones of an ancestor. I always try to arrange the bones neat and say a prayer or two for their souls to ask their pardon. I'll be disturbing more of them if that bell's anything to go by. It was the foreigners who brought this evil on us, on a trading ship full of furs, pelts and barrels of nails that sailed into us through last Thursday. I like to go down to watch the ships when I can. I always wanted to sail when I was younger and see the places the priests talk about, Rome, Paris or London. When I saw the ship, I thought there was precious few men handling a vessel that size. I wish it would have said something at the docks. But I was called away to help the boy move his cattle, and you can't say no to him. There's no rest for any of us at Ballyhona. Even less rest now, given so many have taken sick. Cows still need milking and droving, ships need unloading, and the watch needs to be set in case the troubles start up again. It's not just us commoners that's suffering, neither. We haven't had any help from the Ernoch's physicians. He's needed them for himself. The sickness has cut through the family of our Ernoch like a scythe. Two good, strong sons and a daughter, as well as his wife. His servant said that Master McGowan was looking none too well himself, sweating and shaking, though he was still trying to stumble about to calm all our nerves. For if a healthy and strong man like that, fed on the best cuts of fresh meat, milk and ales, can sicken and wither, what hopes for the likes of us, who scrape by on oatmeal gruel and winkles from the coast and the odd fish, if we're lucky enough to catch one, or a bit of grisly mutton? Still, I can't complain too much. Knife here is pretty good compared with what you hear beyond. At least it was, until this pestilence came. <coughs> come, come to think of it, I'm not feeling too good myself. Wonder who'll dig my grave. <coughs> <laughs> Wonder if there'll be anyone left. <coughs> Conclusion The Ballyhanna Research Project brought together the expertise of archaeologists and scientists based within the National Roads Authority, now Transport Infrastructure Ireland, the Institute of Technology Sligo and Queen's University Belfast to undertake a unique collaborative programme studying this human skeletal population from this location on the southern bank of the River Erne. The painstaking study of these skeletons has now generated new insights into what life would have been like for this community of ordinary medieval Gaelic folk 
living on their small Aranoc estate. The work of the Ballyhanna Research Project has allowed us to glimpse the lives of these people through their deaths. For all the hardship in their lives, however, there would undoubtedly have also been time for some laughter within this rural population. The distillation of whisky in advance of holidays and fairs, perhaps, or the consumption of wine from far-off places at such events. Folk tales of Shannock and Eirua Macbarren and ghost stories told by the old people to the children around the firesides on dark winter's evenings. Maybe even time for sport, since some of the menfolk displayed fractures in their hand bones, which, while possibly sustained through work, may be indicative of their involvement in a game such as come on, winter hurling. Life on the estate continued through the medieval period, decade after decade, generation after generation, until suddenly there was change. A new bishop and overlord, and a new tenant-in-chief. The last people were laid to rest in the graveyard at Ballyhanna during the early decades of the 17th century. And it may have been the case that the local community were now forced to abandon their church and their graveyard, perhaps at the instigation of the new bishop, or more probably, his new tenant. Evidently, the old church was not required by its new owners, the Church of Ireland, and this led to its abandonment and, in due course, its removal from the landscape. By that time, and in the area under investigation by the archaeologists, over 1,296 individuals had been laid to rest in its graveyard. In collaboration with the local community, the Ballyhanna Research Project has also left a visible legacy in the locality. The foundations of the small stone church that was discovered during the dig have been incorporated into a garden where the local community and visitors can come to reflect upon the lives lived and lost over the centuries at Ballyhanna. In the garden, you can read a verse from the 19th century poet William Allingham, who was a native of Ballyshannon, called Under the Grass. Where these green mounds are looked the mingling urn and salt Atlantic, clay that walked as man a thousand years ago, some Viking stern may rest or nameless chieftain of a clan. And when my dusty remnant shall return to the great passive world, and nothing can with eye or lip or finger any more, oh, lay it there too by the river shore. We hope you have enjoyed this audiobook. Produced by Abarta Audio Guides on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. For more information about the Ballyhanna Research Project, and Transport Infrastructure Ireland's other archaeological projects, please visit tii.ie.